Welcome back, everyone. So glad to have you with us for another week of Torah study. <laughs> I don't know why I said it like that. That's weird. Welcome back, everyone. So glad to have you with us for another week of Torah study. You know, as I mentioned last week, we're changing up the structure of the show a bit, and it's been fun and exciting to continue to reimagine not just what this show looks and sounds like, but what Torah interpretation can look and sound like, and whose lives it can reflect. And I hope that, no matter what your religious background is, no matter from where you join us in the world, you feel like this is a space for some thought-provoking conversations that lift up your week, even if just a little. This week is the 16th Parsha of Torah, Parsha Beshalach, and what's known as Shabbat Shira, or Shabbat of Singing. Rabbi Adam is back this week, and in preparing for the episode, he pointed out that this Parsha includes the most important song of the Torah, the Song of the Seas, after the Red Sea splits. And we thought it would be good to invite a guest who has not just a deep understanding of the weight of this Parsha, but a personal connection to the power of singing itself. So we called up Neshama Karlbach, one of modern Judaism's best-selling singers and songwriters, to discuss her journey through song. Neshama grew up in an Orthodox community, and because of that, we'll talk about some ideas that I just want to define ahead of time for those of you that might not have a deep understanding of Jewish terminology. If you're a Jew in the know, then, well, just chill for a sec. Now, in Judaism, Orthodoxy is one denomination among a handful, included but not limited to Reform and Conservative, that's how I grew up, and the different forms of Orthodoxy are the strictest, and there is still quite a bit of separation between men and women, especially when it comes to prayer. If you were to walk into an Orthodox synagogue on any given day, especially Shabbat, you'd find that the prayer room itself is split into a men's section and a women's section, often separated by a wall, or at the very least, like in my grandfather's synagogue, just a railing. And this separation is called a mechitza. But of course, the delineation between men and women doesn't stop there. In fact, it only gets more strict. In Orthodox Judaism, there are a lot of rules and beliefs that separate men and women, often under the guise of not wanting the men to be distracted. Neshama will talk about her own feelings when it comes to some of these laws, especially with what's known as kol isha, or the voice of a woman. The further into orthodoxy you go, the more, shall I say, extreme it gets. There are certain communities who don't believe men should even hear the sound of a singing woman, lest he get too excited. Neshama will point out that maybe everyone should just take care of themselves, and if a man can't be in the presence of a woman without going gaga, he perhaps has bigger problems, and dare I say the systemic misogyny inherent in right-wing religion across the board doesn't help the matter. See Mike Pence's unwillingness to have a meal alone with a woman other than his wife. Now I do find myself wanting to clarify that not all Orthodox Jews are like this. My grandfather, a modern Orthodox Jewish rabbi, loved going to see Broadway musicals, chorus girls, and all. 
Even in the same communities, there are differences of beliefs, and while yes, the behavior seen in the Netflix show Unorthodox is deeply disturbing, a fantastic watch if you haven't yet, it's not representative of every Orthodox Jewish community. But today we'll talk with Neshama about her experience in stepping away from Orthodoxy, finding her own voice in her spiritual practice, and the importance of making Torah study personal. Neshama also mentions Safaria, and I do want to give Safaria a shout out because it's a tool I often use in preparing for this show, and no, this is not an ad, but Safaria.com is a website that has the majority of Jewish texts, Torah included, digitized, and translated, with links to hundreds of commentaries from rabbis and thinkers throughout the ages. If you're looking for a digital space to start reading the actual biblical texts, Safaria is a good place to start. Before I release you from this longer-than-usual intro, I'd like to invite you all to engage with us on Twitter at study underscore show. We sincerely love hearing from you. And an even more direct line to us is through our Patreon page, patreon.com slash the study. For the low price of whatever you feel you can share with us, we are engaging with our patrons in really fun and exciting ways. I've gotten to read Jamie's writing on the joy of Shabbat, hear from JQ about her excitement to re-engage with these topics after so long. So so join us and help us make this show all we know it can be. And if you don't have the means right now, we totally understand. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. It helps more than you know. And of course, tell a friend. Okay. To the show. It is a celebratory day here. I am so glad to welcome Rabbi Adam back to the show. My heart is filled having you back in the co-host chair. Thanks for being here, Rabbi Adam. It's so good to be back here. I've missed you, Raviv. I have missed you greatly. And today, dear listeners, you are in for a great treat. We have award-winning singer, songwriter, teacher, and one of today's best-selling Jewish artists in the world, Neshama Karlbach. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So awesome to be with you. Uh, So awesome to have you. And today we're talking music and songs, specifically in regards to this Torah portion. But before we dive into Torah study, Neshama, so much of your work has been focused on expanding rights and roles of women in Judaism, and your husband is also a celebrated activist and rabbi who has worked to break down barriers within the Jewish community for queer people and women. And to set up some context for the week, I'd love to know what role music has played in your activism, and what do you think activism would look like without music? That's a very good question. Um, I don't think that there is life without music. I think that music is the heartbeat and the, the, you know, the, the theme song, the theme to, to all meaningful things that we create. And I think that for me, music has been my strength. Music has been my connection to the divine. Hmm. My awareness of the universe that's bigger than I am comes to my heart through song. It's a communication. When you have no words that can really express your deeper truth, music, especially the nigun, which is the song without the words, it just, it opens you, it expands you. Um, And I think that when music is a part of life, 
We are capable of being our best selves and from that place make more space for other people. So it's not even about working toward my activism. It's like, how can you not love every person? How can you not see the preciousness of life? How can you not appreciate the harmony that's coming from every being in the world? You know, my, my father would often speak about how when the world was created, God created and infused this world with song. So God didn't declare, let there be grass, let there be bugs, let there, you know, every blade of grass, every bit of creation had its own melody. And that when the world was in heaven, was in that heavenly space, every single part of creation was a symphony. And that was how they communicated. That's how they spoke to each other. And somehow it makes sense. Um, so for me, music is everything. It really is. Rabbi Adam, you know what's next. Parshat Bashalach is calling out for a summary, and uh, you are today's leading expert. So if you wouldn't mind. Well, I hope I'm not too rusty. And Neshama, <laughs> thank you for starting us in that beautiful place with the image of the symphony that started it all and that continues to resonate in all. This week's Parsha begins just on the outside of Egypt. It starts with the escaping slaves making their way um, in their first days after liberation, um, being guided by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, which I just think are two of the Torah's most gorgeous images. They get a few days out of Egypt and they camp in front of a body of water, the Yam Suf, the Sea of Reeds. And at around that time, Pharaoh wakes up and says, what did I do letting my slaves go? I'm going to be the laughingstock at the next ancient world G8 convention when I have to show my face with the other ancient <laughs> dictators who lets their slaves go. And, uh, and he sends his armies to go and recollect them. And so the people are trapped quite literally between the devil and the deep blue sea with water ahead of them, with the hoofbeats of Pharaoh's chariots behind them. And this gives way to the most famous miracle of the Torah, maybe the most famous miracle of all time, Kriyat Yamsuf, the splitting of the sea, this image of a sea splitting in half and the people walking uh, in the midst of the waves on dry ground. And I just think it is not only one of the most beautiful images of, of God's intervention in the world, um, but it's a, it's a birth image, right? We all come into the world through a narrow channel of water that opens for us and lets us out into a new reality, um, an uncharted reality, a wilderness ahead of us. It's interesting. They, they don't walk through the split sea and on the other side of the sea is the promised land. They walk through the split sea on the other side of the sea is 40 more years of wilderness to have to figure out. But it's a start. And the sea comes crashing down behind them, uh, closing off the place of their oppression forever. And their response is song. So Exodus chapter 15, what's called the song of the sea, is this beautiful and moving and triumphant song of victory that is chanted by observant Jews every morning as part of the morning liturgy. 
A section of it is chanted in every Jewish service. The Michamocha prayer comes from the Song of the Sea. And this Shabbat becomes known in our tradition as Shabbat Shira, the Shabbat of song, because it, it contains within it this particularly beautiful poem. There's a lot more that happens after this. We, we hear about the first few months of their wandering in the desert. It doesn't all go well. They make their way from oasis to oasis, and the people start to long for the life that they left behind. It's possible to miss even slavery, but they are having their first growing pains with Moshe, with their leader, with God, figuring out what it's going to look like in this new reality. So this is a Parsha which gives birth to everything that follows. This is a Parsha with the kind of miracle that they keep making movies about because it is so cinematic, so dramatic. And this is a Parsha who has a heart of song, a, a, a song that, that continues to resonate and be part of Jewish liturgy and to give inspiration to our amazing singers and music makers like Yunashama up to today. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love that. You know, there's an aspect of this Parsha that got me thinking about intergenerational relationships because as the song of the sea is sung, it feels like the implication of what's written is that the song is meant for the edification of future generations. And Rabbi Adam, we've talked so much on the show about generational traumas and how within the Torah, different things are passed down. But what's the positively constructive rather than the traumatic version of passing down this Jewish experience, I guess, through song here? Is that what's happening? Mm. What a what a lovely way of reframing it, right? That this is, we can pass down our pain, but we can also pass down our exaltation. Mm. Um, so one of the early lines in the song is, Right. This this is the God of my ancestors, and it is to me to lift that God up, which is uh, an interesting question, right? How how is a person to lift up God? God is already the highest, hmm. but instead the the song says, in each generation, we have the obligation to lift up the God of our fathers and mothers to lift up the God of our parents uh, in in a new way. It's a, it's a new song. Nishama, it strikes me that your music also isn't only original work. You, you cover prayers sometimes. And I guess I want to know why. Does this idea of the intergenerational transmission of ideas relate in any way to part of your work? It's my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's great. all of it. It's all of it. And I, I love what you're saying about the passing down of exaltation. Um, when I hear that it is up to us to lift God, my, my feeling that, that what I carry with me is it's up to us to lift each other because we are each of us the divine emanation of all that God represents, of all that God sends down. And it is, it is these moments where you said, so gorgeous from oasis to oasis, that's life. You know, we have these massive, huge celebrations and the next day is really crappy. <laughs> it's like, you know, one day you could be uplifted and saved and the next minute you're like completely depressed and you feel totally alone. And it's about 
Lifting God is about remembering that there is hope, remembering that we carry the prayer within us, even when the days are beautiful, even when the days are hard, that we have to be able to be strong enough to think about where we've come from and where we're going. And in those moments, the prayer is the redemption. That's what it is. Um, it's my entire life. <laughs> it's, what I, it's what I pray for. It's what I long for. It's why I started this work. Um, and I love that this Shabbat comes every year. We need it more than once a year, actually. Can, you, can we start a movement, just Shabbat Shira once a month? Can we <laughs> remember this? I, uh, I recently spent my birthday evening watching the movie Yentl. Oh, <laughs> the best. Truly the best. And Barbara Streisand's character, she's a female in a small Polish Orthodox Jewish community. She loves learning and she's hungry for information, specifically uh, Talmudic study. And it kind of makes me wonder if Yentl took place today, if her story would be different. Nishama, I mean, you came from an Orthodox community and you've done quite a bit of advocacy on behalf of the advancement of women's rights. And you started as a touring musician when you were really young, and now you can reach anywhere but are also, I imagine, vying for attention in this world of everyone being able to share everything. Has your work changed over time as a result of the way that cultural information is shared? I guess I, I wonder, yeah, if, if Yentl happened today, would her story be any different? You, you must be picking the Yentl energy up from life. <laughs> I've been, I was on a Zoom. I was blessed to be on a Zoom with Mandy Patinkin just like a couple Ooh. weeks ago. And I was wow. like, oh my God, Mandy, Yentl was my movie. <laughs> tell and I showed my children the trailer and they're like, what is this? Like, when was this movie made? I'm like, this is the best, you know? They're like, they're not interested in Fiddler. They want the Avengers, you know? Like, they're not, it's like, sure. what, what kind of camera did they use? This is terrible. <laughs> you know, it's unbelievable. Um, so I love that you just brought Yentl up. And, um, and I will say, I wanted to be Yentl so bad. I was an Orthodox woman just wanting to be on the other side of the machitza, like in the most desperate way. You know, there's a, there's a big, uh, I don't know how many thousands of men who go to Uman for Rosh Hashanah to pray by the grave of Reb Nachman. And I thought seriously about dressing up and going because I so badly wanted to go and I didn't want to go and be behind the machitza around the block, you know, in the gymnasium, you know, with the women who were supposed to be cooking, you know, I wanted to be there in the middle of it. Um, so amazing that you just brought Yentl up. I've been, I've been literally like living in Yentl the last few days. And I think if that moment was now, uh, maybe Yentl would have had an illuminating you know, enlightened moment, epiphany in her life to realize that every one of us is blessed, to realize that every one of our voices is important. And maybe she would have just lived on Safaria for a while and not cut off her hair. <laughs> you know, maybe she would have learned from another source. Um, for me, when I stopped, you know, I don't want to say I stopped being Orthodox, that sounds so strange, but when I stopped seeing myself as that kind of Jew. Um, mm. That's when my life began. 
because I stopped feeling like I needed to apologize for my existence and I could be strong and I could be myself and I could learn Torah and not find a man to give the credit to. You know, people have asked me, you know, why is it that I've carried my father so close? I needed a man. I couldn't say that this was my idea. I had to give somewhere, the credit somewhere. When I stopped being Orthodox, when I was able to just stand on my own, I said, yeah, this is, this is my own idea. This is my own this is something that I learned on my own. Um, and that, for me personally, that was incredibly redemptive. So, you know, this Parsha, which has the Song of the Sea, it says this is Moshe's song. This is a man's song. But it also talks about Miriam leading the women in song and dance. And, you know, we, we have thousands of years of a Jewish tradition, which restricted women's voices and told women not to be in front of the kahal, in front of the community, or to sing out in their own voice. Um, But our founding text has a woman in the presence of Moshe Rabbeinu, in the presence of God at the moment when heaven and earth are closest, leading people in song and dance. I've always kind of wondered, like, how does a woman who keeps to Kol Isha hold on to this story, right? How does somebody who, in their contemporary version of of Jewish understanding, doesn't feel free to have their voice and then looks at Miriam and and has to say, like, couldn't that be me? I don't know. Does that does that resonate? Totally. When I was I went to yeshiva when I was young, and they taught that there was you know there was a good mechitza in the sea. Like, don't think men and women walk down the same aisle. There was good division even then. Hmm. And I remember, like, I kind of, when I imagine with my yeshiva lens, you know, there was like, you know, like little um, aquarium-esque kind of walls. You know, like, so Miriam was singing there and that was cool because none of the men could hear because they were over there. And how terrible is that? How awful is that? Um, I have I have many issues with Kolisha, clearly, um, and I don't I don't believe that it's what I am created for was to be behind my aquarium boundary um, to make sure that no one feels anything while I sing. That's not what I was born to do. That's not what I believe um, women are born for, and um, I believe that we have to be more accountable for our own selves. I think that that thing where you know the the men of the world have to blame the women well i was too excited because she was singing like you know what it's time for you to go to your own therapy and stop blaming you know your own (laughs) stuff i'm sorry but like i am no longer going to be responsible for your whims and your problems you know it's not about sorry to be uh, really honest about it but i i think that's um that's one of the behaviors that that over the last however many thousands of years has to change Kolisha is not, it's not on me not to sing. If you have a problem listening, then okay, don't come. One of our favorite ways to unwind at the end of the week is to sit back, relax, and head to a virtual gathering where you don't have to do anything. One Table is offering live virtual events like Shabbat cooking classes, virtual ritual, and trivia nights to help keep the magic of Shabbat, even when we can't gather in real life. Check at One Table Shabbat's Instagram every week for details. Back to the Parsha, something that caught my eye was 
the ambivalence about moving forward versus going back that the Israelites experienced once they were out of the land of Egypt. And I want to quote from the Mechilta of Rabbi Ishmael. As they stood at the shore of the sea, the people of Israel split into four factions. One faction said, let us cast ourselves into the sea. A second faction said, let us return to Egypt. A third said, let us wage war against Egyptians. And a fourth said, let us cry out to God. Rabbi Adam, could you talk a bit about how these divisions were possible considering the, the cruelty that the Israelites had just escaped? Why would, why would anyone want to go back? Why does anybody return to their abuser? Why do hurt people continue to hurt other people and perpetuate the same cycles in their own family? Why do people not leave behind toxic jobs or toxic relationships or ways of life that aren't serving them? There is the devil that we know, and then there is the fear of the unknown. And so often, everybody chooses the devil that they know rather than finding the courage in themselves to face the unknown. Egypt was home. It wasn't a good home, but it was home. And the wilderness is scary. Anything could happen. Maybe it'll be better, but maybe it won't be. I can empathize with the people who say, actually, I just want to go home and I have learned to live with it. I, I, I get that impulse um, in my own heart. Um, and we owe our past 3,000 years to the people who were willing to say, let's go forward. I think about my great-grandparents who got on boats in steerage to leave behind Poland and Russia for an entirely different world. And if they hadn't, chances are our family line would have ended with the Shoah. But some people were willing to say, I will take the unknown over a perpetuation of this suffering that I am currently living under. And, and that made all the difference in our history. So I, I, I get why people wanted to turn around and go back. And I am so grateful that at least some of them were willing to keep trudging forward because they opened up the path for the rest of us. Yes. And I'm, I tell you, when I think about the, the story also, Nachshon, you know, it's like this beautiful moment of Nachshon walking in and the water is up to his neck. And what, what was going through his heart, his mind at that moment? It's, I mean, for me, that's it's like a, that's such an inspirational moment in my own Yiddishkeit, my own Judaism all my life. Like, wow, he just walked into the ocean like he believes he's going to try. He's not going back. He doesn't know what's there and he's trying anyway. And then at that last moment, you know, we learn that it's like there's all these different mefarshim, but it's like Nachshon was almost drowning. He was at that moment when he was almost gone. That's when the sea opened. And sometimes you need to get there. Sometimes you need to be at your own end. Sometimes you need to just know that this is the only path forward. You have to be at the end, at the very edge of the darkness before the day breaks. Mm. And I love that so much. That's all of our story. Nishama, could you, just for our listeners who might not be familiar with the character of Nachshon, 
Um, this is a character who is imagined by our by our rabbis in the midrash in a sort of alternative story of the the splitting of the sea. Would you would you be willing to tell us that story? Sure. Um, you can you can add on. You you probably know even more than me, but. <laughs> They get to the edge of the sea and they don't know what to do, and they're standing there. And I, I, you know, I imagine this moment of total chaos and panic. And then I believe they already saw that the army was coming. So it was, it wasn't, you know, it's yes, that's the, the devil in the deep blue sea. But they knew that they were being chased. And so what do we do now? And I imagine tears and chaos and screaming. And then, in that moment, one brave soul stepped in to the ocean. And, you know, it was amazing also. It wasn't Moshe, right? It was not our own. It was someone else. And I, you know, the truth is, I don't know if you know more about that Nachshon person, where they came from, where did they get that courage? But he just started to walk. Like, I'm, I'm in. I'm in the ocean. And walked in and everyone, I can imagine people looking at him and what's he doing? And that's, you know, and then who would imagine ever that the sea would open? You know, it's a miracle of great proportion. And yet his faith, his belief in that moment, I guess it was all their tears, all their faith, everyone collectively that created this moment of Yam Suf, of the opening, the splitting of the sea. Um, there should be a movie made about Nachshon, I think. <laughs> what did he have for breakfast? Like, how did he, yeah. how did he manage that moment of bravery? It's, um, I think about Nachshon every day. I don't think I've actually ever said that out loud, but the, for me, this moment, that, that, that show of courage um, deeply inspires me. He's my, my Bubby's favorite character in the Torah, as she tells me often. Thank God my Bubby is still well, and she talks about, about Nachshon. And I tell the story of Nachshon to all of my Introduction to Judaism students. And I've had a, a handful of Jews by choice who get the opportunity to name themselves. I get the opportunity to take a Hebrew name in the process who have chosen to take the name Nachshon, who identify with the one who steps into the water and doesn't know what's going to happen, but is going to walk forward no matter what. And I, I always find those to be some of the, the most special individuals that I get to, to walk with are the, the ones who become Nachshons. Yes. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. You send your bubby my love. I will do. We share that. And I just want to make sure I'm correct here. Is it, Well, please also send your bubby my love. But I want to make sure I understand. Nachshon is from Midrashim, right? Not from the Torah itself? Is Nachshon so mentioned? Is named, Nachshon is named as one of the chieftains in the various censuses that we get. Sensai? Sense, I don't sure. know the plural is there. Uh, in the Sensai, I've decided that should be a word. Uh, in the Torah, <laughs> Nachshon is named, but we don't know anything about his character. And um, it's the rabbis later on who, looking back at the story, which, as it appears to us on the, the page, has Moses doing all of the work. The rabbis go back and say, actually, um, the, the work wasn't just Moses lifting up his staff and magically the water split. It took something much more active, mm. and they read Nachshon back into that moment as a way, I think, of teaching their people that God's not going to do it all, mm. that they have to do 99% of the work, and it's that last 1% that's the grace. 
but uh, but you can't you can't stand at the sea and expect it to split. You actually have to walk into the water. Yes, this is one of my most favorite um, images always that I carry is is the how people blow glass, how glass is created because glass can only change its shape when it's in the fieriest of fires when it's burning up, when it's in so much heat that you think it's about to be destroyed. But it is in that moment that that glass can shift and bend and become something else. And I am a firm believer that we are all phoenixes. We all somehow, for us to have true transformation, we have to go through the fire. We have to live, and even if it's, I mean, hopefully it's not years, hopefully it's brief, hopefully it's, but for whatever reason in this world, for us to go from our deepest you know, from our slavery into a, a place of, I don't know if it's redemption or just a new day or a new oasis, we have to burn up. Something has to happen and we have to burn. We have to go into the water up to our nose. We have to be nearly drowning. We have to be in the fire. And then that's when the miracle happens. And I believe that God is effervescent and present and with us, but I really do believe that it's, it's 99.9% what we bring. And that little bit of light that we get, you know, that's, that's ours anyway. But we do it. We bring God here. We allow God to shine. We, we bring that redemption story forward. It's all us. And we are more powerful and more capable than any of us can begin to imagine. We just give up too soon. But wouldn't it be nice just sometimes if it didn't always have to be that way? I mean, I, I resonate with the, the poetry and the spirituality and you speak absolutely the truth. And I'm just thinking, you know, we are, we are a week out from the end of these four years of madness in the United States. We are still deep in the middle of pandemic. I am thinking about a a t-shirt that I once bought as a teenager on the boardwalk at Venice Beach that has a smiley face sun on it. And it says, Dear God, not another effing learning opportunity. Um, (laughs) I can't tell you the number of times I have worn that shirt as an undershirt. I don't really, I don't believe in walking around with shirts with profanity on them. Um, But as an undershirt right next to my heart, I, I, I know that feeling of, please, God, not another learning opportunity. <laughs> It'd be nice if things were sometimes simple. Yeah, we're ready for it. <laughs> Seriously. You know, talking about all of this uh, emotional complexities and going back to the idea of these four different factions, and I'm sure there are also many more, right? Everyone is experiencing this. All the Israelites are experiencing this moment on their own. But out of these factions and all of these different emotional uh, places comes one song, and they all sing together. And Shama, I'm wondering how you think it's possible for one voice to come from many disputing factions. What do you what do you make of that? It's an amazing question. I think underneath it all, we're the same. I think underneath it all, our souls are saying the same thing. We have different angles. We have different languages. We have, you know, the different masks, literally, that we wear. But I believe within, we are all one 
soul. We're all one voice. And so when it comes to the longing, to the, to the cry that comes from within in a very deep moment, it makes absolute sense that that was the one moment that we all said the same thing, that we all sang the same song. I don't know, I'm sure you, you both know it's like the most tragic thing in the world. You could be fighting with someone, you could be at odds with someone, and then God forbid someone's in trouble. Someone's, God forbid, in the hospital. It just nothing matters. Like, why, why are we holding on to all of this, this stuff that keeps us from our essence? Because in our essence, we are all, I feel like we all just want to be okay. We want to love our moms. We want to, you know, we want to be safe. We want to eat well. We want our kids to be happy. I don't know. It's it's a funny and, and tragic thing for me to think that we that when we are all united, that that's strange. Why does that have to be strange? You know, when the world is falling apart, when the world is burning around us, why can't we accept the fact that maybe our song is the same song? That would be awesome. Robbie Adam, any any rabbinical takes on this? Because I, I I come from the world of musical theater, at least when I was young, and it feels like that musical theater moment of, you know, everybody's walking around the stage and all of a sudden at the same time they break into song. But it, it, it I mean, it, it's, it's beautiful and, and fascinating. But because Rob Adam, you talk about, you said this is the most important song in the Torah. Well, if one takes off the set of glasses that sees the Torah as one cohesive sacred whole, that is one important set of glasses and puts on the set of glasses that sees the Torah as a document that came to be through multiple hands at multiple times. That's another important set of glasses. And I feel like it's important to be able to switch between the two comfortably. Um, Biblical scholars will say, I believe that the song of the sea may be the most ancient piece of the entire Torah, Hmm. that this text bears hallmarks of Hebrew that is older than the text that comes before it and the text that comes after it. And in fact, that that's true about um, most of biblical poetry, that we wrote in poetry before we learned to write in prose. And so if that is the case, then, then we were singers before we were talkers. And there's something I think important to know in that um my my little girl is a is a dancer um she is perpetually she's 19 months yesterday perpetually twirling in circles and imitating the ballerinas she likes to watch in youtube videos yes we let her watch screen time but she then goes and does ballet uh her form of ballet so i can't help it um from our earliest times music speaks to us and poetry speaks to us uh, before we can put it all into complex, uh, sophisticated prose. I think, I think the idea going back to Nishama where you started of a kind of primordial song is actually being reflected in academic biblical criticism that we, we, we started out with this song and everything else built up around it. Yeah. I mean, Nishama, you have, a relationship with Judaism and song that really recognizes the whole gamut of emotions. And because your music is inclusive and reflective of your faith, uh, how do you take into account these very real emotional complexities in Judaism? I think we're meant to hold many truths simultaneously. 
I think I think that's what we're meant to do. I think we've we've all fallen into this pattern of wanting life to be simpler and wanting joy to be joy. But you know, when you look back at the Jewish wedding, it's always you know we talk about it all the time. Why are you breaking a glass at the very moment of their greatest joy? Why are you destroying something? So one of my most favorite words um, from the Kabbalah, I think. It says that everything in this world is mirrored above in the realms of heaven. And so at the moment when we are destroying something here in this world, in the other world, they are rebuilding all of our broken pieces. They're they are pulling all of our fragmentations, all of them coming back together by our grandchildren and children and by their parents and, and grandparents. And that it's it's like a, what we see in this world is something that's falling apart and in heaven is reflected as renewal. Um, and I really feel so deeply like we, we miss so much because we're so wanting things to be just happy or just, I don't know, maybe easier. Life is not easy and things are confusing. And can you love someone and not love them at the same time? Yes. Can you be happy and unhappy? Yes, because we all are. Um, one of my most just reflecting on my Judaism, the Havdalah prayer, the, the prayer that we say between Shabbat and the rest of the week acknowledges this little tiny space. It's not Shabbos. It's not Sunday. You know, what is this little moment of in-between? And in that moment of in-between, we are honoring the darkness and the light and the holy and the unholy with a twisted candle that kind of holds all of our fragments together in one space. And the more we can stay strong and grounded and allow all of those things to coexist simultaneously, the more whole, the more capable we will be. Um, and I, for me, music has helped me get there. Music is like the salve. Music is the medication. Um, the Torah, same. You know, I, I, don't, I don't look for my world to be fixed, but I, I feel inspired by these moments of transcendence that show me that, yeah, it's okay that I'm falling apart and standing up. It's okay that inside of me, I, I feel like I have no strength, but on the outside, someone's reflecting back to me that I've never looked better or that I've never, I've never given more than I have now. Um, and I think, I think it's all possible. How are we redeemed from slavery and yet still so sad? How are we, how are we anything? Um, and yet we are. And, and I embrace that about being human and about being one community in this pandemic more than ever. How is it that we are somehow stronger? How is it that somehow people are falling apart and standing up? Because we're meant to. The, what we are supposed to see when we learn all of this is our own lives reflected and feel inspiration for great personal growth and change. And this week, just embrace, if you can, this moment of crossing from something painful into something hopeful. And we need that more than ever. And oh, are we grateful that we can sit together, that we can join from all different spaces in our world, in our country right now, despite it all, and somehow find this place to connect about all of our new mikvah beginnings and our just the ability to transcend and I hope that you feel that. I hope you feel that hope and that, and the gratitude for your lives and the gratitude for this moment because we are capable of all of these things. It's not an old story. It's a story of our lives right now today. So thank you, both of you and all of you, for, for bringing me into this conversation. I'm so inspired. Thank you.
Same, same, same. What a true honor to study Torah with both of you. I too am so inspired at this moment and I'll carry that with me uh, definitely for the rest of the week into Shabbat and onwards. And uh, to all of our listeners out there, thank you for joining and Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. So nice to be with you. And let us say amen. May we be blessed. May we be blessed. We're currently listening to Nishama's song, Hear Our Prayer, from her 2019 album, Believe. The study is produced by Evan Scott Nicholas and me, Raviv Ullman. My co-host today was Rabbi Adam Greenwald. Our guest was Nishama Karlbach. Artwork by Julia Pott. We'll see you next week. Upon us. Oh, heal us now.